Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tortoise. Hello, it's Basha here. James is away, so I'm in the editor's chair this week. It's Monday the 30th of October from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. Israel has urged Russia to protect all its citizens and all Jews after a large mob, some shouting anti-Semitic slogans, stormed a Dagestan airport. There is now ground fighting inside the Gaza Strip and we've been watching it intensify all weekend. No longer are people saying, where do we go to be safe? The question they are now asking is where do we want to be when we die? Football's world governing body, FIFA, has banned the former Spanish football president, Luis Rubiales, from football for three years. Authorities investigating the shocking death of Friends star Matthew Perry after police say they found him dead in a hot tub at his Los Angeles home. I'm joined by Tortoise editor Kerry Thomas. Hello. Hi, Bash. Giles Wattel, who is Tortoise's world affairs editor. Hello. I got that right this week. Oh, did you get it wrong another week? I got it wrong last week or the week before. And Hashi Mohammed. Hashi is a broadcaster and barrister who specialises in planning law, and he's also a contributing editor at Tortoise. Hello, Hashi. Good morning. So let's go round and find out what each of you wants to talk about with long story short. So Kerry, why don't we start with you? What's your long story? I want to do the story of why a small regional airport in the Caucasus has been closed for a couple of days. Which you compared to Luton earlier this morning. (laughs) When you see the footage of it, it looks an awful lot like Luton Airport. Um, Giles, what's on your mind? Mike Johnson is in the house, uh, which augurs ill for progressives and says a lot about Trump. So this is the new speaker? Correct. Okay, and Hashi, what's on your mind this week? I am going to go shorter than both of those and say, think Scylla Black, Laura Laura Love, a new dawn for planning. (laughs) Cryptic. Okay, great. So before we get to Kerry, we'll start with you. Giles, could we just go back over what's happened this weekend in Gaza with the escalation on the ground, the bombing? Can you just sort of bring us up to date? I'll do my best. And any of the rest of you, please feel free to pitch in because we're all doing the same sort of peering at it through binoculars. Um, You mentioned escalation. It's not clear yet whether that's the right word in the sense that the very large um, uh, quantities of heavy armour that were gathered on the northern and the eastern border of Gaza have not yet moved in. What we have seen, though, which is new, is tanks, 
crossing the northern border towards Gaza City along tracks bulldozed for them by these terrifying huge armoured bulldozers that the IDF uses and used to, to break through the um, the border fence. There have been skirmishes with Hamas fighters. Um, the IDF has released footage of uh, some of their troops moving slowly, which we're told is going to be a key part of the the strategy, not so fast as to fall into traps, but uh, keeping moving to show that they're that in order to make progress. Some numbers, uh, the number of Palestinian dead um, given by the Hamas-controlled health ministry in Gaza is now around 8,000. Let's remember 1,400 plus were massacred on, on October the 7th. Let's also remember I don't think it's controversial to say this, that whereas the IDF makes, at least in principle, an attempt to avoid civilian casualties, that attack on the 7th of October was deliberately targeted at civilians. I'll move on. Um, There are supposed to be around 14,000 civilians taking shelter in the Al-Quds hospital, um, under which... Israel says there's a Hamas command center in this network of tunnels, um, which is why it's doing a lot of targeting locations around there. Uh, 33 trucks are supposed to have got through yesterday. That's more than on any day. Uh, That's lorry loads of aid uh, more than any day since this began. Although uh, on the BBC this morning, they were saying that in normal times, you get about 500 a day. Uh, so obviously shortages of everything, including medicine, are, are critical. I also saw that there were warnings that civil order is starting to break down because some of the aid points where they're you know, stacking mm. food are now starting to be looted by desperate civilians. Yeah. And, and, and that sort of, that turn of phrase, civil order starting to break down and, and humanity, it's, it's all incremental, isn't it? So I don't, you don't want to undermine the severity of what's going on there, but it's difficult as on a day-to-day basis, on a rolling basis, to get a handle on what the, the crucial developments are, which is why I guess uh, we, we come back to tanks crossing the border. Mm. And harder still, given that communication was out, I think, mm. for, what, the last 24 hours? Maybe longer, 36? Yes, and uh, but coming back on yesterday mm. with sort of feels inevitable, doesn't it, an offer from Elon Musk to connect everybody up by Starlink. Okay, so whether it's an escalation or an intensification, this weekend has been particularly significant. But there's a the story that you want to pitch, Kerry, is kind of adjacent. So tell us what happened at Mahachkala Airport. So I think we're seeing the, the ripples from what's what happened in Israel, what's happening in Gaza, spreading across the world, um, sometimes in places you'd expect and sometimes in more surprising places. And footage started to come out yesterday lunchtime of uh, a reaction in a place that I hadn't thought of, I'd never heard of. This place is a Mahachkala in Dagestan. So if you're looking at it on the map, if you can picture sort of south of Russia, to the right of Georgia, up a bit from Azerbaijan, over by the Caspian Sea, that's the sort of that's the sort of part of the world we're looking at. Um, a Muslim majority uh, uh, republic, um, and what had happened was that a rumor 
went round on a telegram channel that a flight was due into Mahachkala Airport from Tel Aviv. In response to which, um, hundreds of mostly men gathered at, at the airport. And there's, there's footage of them that's been circulated on social media. And you can see them rampaging around the airport, pulling open doors, breaking down doors. You can see sort of terrified airport staff behind the doors. Um, they then go onto the runway to try to actually get at the plane that they think has arrived from Tel Aviv, which, of course, it, it hasn't. It's not true that this right. plane is from Tel Aviv. It, you know, Lord alone knows what the consequences would have been if it had been, because um, this was a this was a nasty, nasty-looking mm. mob of people. And it ends... The, 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 you can hear the chants of Allahu Akbar. Um, I'm told, though I can't hear it myself, that there are clearly anti-Semitic chants as well that are being that are being made by these uh, by these men. Um, and it, the, the incident ends with them um, targeting, interrogating and trying to and seizing the passports of people who've arrived to check whether um, they uh, are Israeli citizens or presumably whether they're simply Jewish. And to, to what end? To attack them? To... To, uh, you, know, you can only assume from looking at it that it is in order to attack them. So it was interesting reading, if you read the BBC this morning, the BBC website, the this is framed as a an anti-Israeli demonstration or anti-Israeli mob. Um, some people have even called it sort of pro-Palestinian. There are definitely Palestinian flags there among the people who are, who are part of the sort of riot. Um, but it's clearly also an anti-Semitic mob. And mm. as I say, it's terrifying to think what would have happened if if they had come across the people they thought uh, mm. they would find, which is people who just arrived fresh from Israel. I think the reason this matters, <clears throat> so it's a few hundred people at Mahachkala Airport in a part of the world that we don't look at very often or, or, or care about very much. But I think I was very struck reading uh, a tweet from Steve Rosenberg, the BBC's Moscow correspondent this morning, who talked about the fact that his great-grandparents had been driven out of the Russian Empire by pogroms in the 1890s. And what he saw, uh, what he was surprised to see in 2023, was a reflection of those pogroms. And you know, for, for, for Jewish people, that word pogrom carries such a mm. – it's so freighted with fear and, and, and there's such a weight to it that um, anything that revives that memory. You know, the, the, the pogroms, most famously, were not necessarily in the Caucasus. They were, they were more associated with Ukraine, with Poland, with, with, with Russia. But for someone like Steve Rosenberg to be saying, this, this is reminiscent of the pogroms that drove out my great-grandparents from this part of the world, is incredibly striking. Mm. And, and it, it's just a hideous thing to have, mm. to have seen. Giles, you you've been to Dagestan, haven't you, in your time covering Russia and the region? Mm. What what sort of a place is it? It, it? I've written down three words here: poor, isolated, and militant. Obviously, not everybody who lives there is militant. But when I, I was there first, before uh, the Chechen wars, and then during, um, so that's nineties. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it was scary. Uh, if you went to the bazaar, you could buy uh, lipyoshka, flatbread, 
but you could also buy horrifying videos of uh, crimes carried out uh, by militants there and just for deeper into the mountains in Chechnya in the course of their um, incipient uh, fight for independence, which of course led to two Chechen wars and uh, Putin's uh, position, which remains to this day, that had he not fought them, uh, Ru- the Russian Federation would have would have broken up. So I, I completely agree with um, with Kerry that the really chilling echo here is of pogroms uh, and the threat to the Jewish people, um, which um, must now be, there's a sort of read across for the whole eight time zones of of, of the Russian Federation, because th- there is a sort of, um, and I'm just going to uh, be at risk of libeling a very large country, but there is a sort of low intensity uh, anti-Semitism built into much of the culture uh, across that country. Uh, but there's also, when, when Putin sees this video, he's going to think uh, public order is breaking down in the Caucasus again. So he will now feel, um, I need to go in to uh, shore up my bona fides as a protector of Jewish people. And let's remember that after October the 7th, his first public comments were in support of Israel and then very quickly um, against the intensity of the Israeli... And it was also his justification for invading Ukraine, right. was to free it from Nazis and anti-Semites. With a completely bogus narrative, mm. yes. Uh, and that, of course, is a deliberate echo of the Great Patriotic War, uh, in which 20 million Russians died. But um, Dagestan, sorry, it's been a long and long-winded answer to your question, is, is oh, always struck me as scary and... Uh, and uh, it now is again. And that, that airport, which you say looks like Luton, um, it's very striking to me for being shiny and new and uh, clearly a Potemkin airport of the kind that they've built all over southern Russia. I have to say Luton is also quite shiny these days because it's also had an upgrade. Um, so, Kerry, is your, is your framing of this story as a sort of uh, it's a bellwether event in a particularly difficult part of the world that, you know, we can see rising anti-Semitic attacks in France, in Germany. Are you sort of linking this to a broader wave of anti-Semitism that you think that this particular conflict is going to unleash? So I think it's unleashing already, I think. Mm. So we've seen significant rises in anti-Semitic attacks in this country, in France, in the United States. Well, we've seen a rise in Islamophobic attacks as well, of course. So, um, so that, you know, both sides are both sides are suffering. I just think this one, because as Giles said, of the these sort of historic echoes, is a really, really hard one to ignore because it is so vivid. It will mean so much to mm. to people like Steve Rosenberg who have these memories of of families driven out of countries by similar sorts of violence um, a while ago, a hundred years and more mm. ago. Um, and so I think it, it is a way to look at the ramifications of this war in the Middle East through, you know, the mm. most surprising and the, and the least surprising of places. Okay, thanks, Kerry. Um, Giles? By the way, what, what I'd like us to do, I, I want us to keep an eye on what happens there. Mm. So there have been 60 arrests. Of the few hundred people who were part of this mob, the Russian authorities have arrested 60, they say. 
they're promising to, to throw the book at them. And I think what I'd like to do is to see whether that happens or not. Because I think one of the tests of, of the Dagestani authorities, I don't know whether Putin's writ runs very much in these parts. does. There's precious little autonomy left. Yeah. So, so really a test of the authorities' commitment to clamp down on, on an incident as horrific as this. Are those arrests followed through? Mm-hmm. Okay. Charles, shall we go to America now? Yes. Um, so, Mike Johnson... Tell us. Mike Johnson is the new Speaker of the House. In a sense, this was last week's news. But over the last few days, we've been learning a little bit more about him, which was important because nobody knew anything about him outside Louisiana, where he hails from, where he's where he represents a congressional district. Mike Johnson's worldview, uh, he told Sean Hannity on Fox, uh, is all there in the Bible. That's all you need. Um, he is, just briefly to tick off um, some fairly predictable policy positions, anti-abortion in all circumstances, uh, anti-gay rights in almost all circumstances. He uh, has, says that he believes if you promote gay rights, you increase risk of paedophilia. Um, uh, he says guns don't kill people. People do, or rather more specifically, the human heart does. Um, this is following the massacre of 18 innocent people in Lewiston, Maine, last week. The reason that I think this is an important story is it shows to what extent the um, Republican caucus, that is the the Republican uh, majority in the lower House of Representatives, uh, which is the seat of American democracy, the generator of American legislation, is controlled by Trump. Um, why were the Republicans looking for a new speaker? Because Matt Gates, another, uh, sorry, the thing that I should have said about Johnson, more important than any of the things I've listed, is he's an absolutely diehard, uh, devoted Trump acolyte. So this emergency, how to restore Republican, stable Republican leadership uh, to the House, started with the removal of uh, Kevin McCarthy a few weeks ago at the behest of uh, Matt Gates from Florida, you, um, according to the rules under which McCarthy was elected, you only need one uh, protester to demand a vote. Um, and uh, then they couldn't find a replacement, mainly because of Trump's de facto veto. So uh, Steve Scalise was in the frame and Trump let drop that he that Scalise had health problems. He immediately withdrew. Tom Emmer was in the frame. Uh, Trump noted that he had uh, endorsed Biden's win in 2020. He was out of the running again. Um, Mike Johnson, by contrast, though below the um, radar for most people, uh, has defended Trump in his first impeachment. He bought and sold the lie about the stolen election. And as I say, is um, joined to him at the hip. Um, going forward, what this means uh, chiefly is actually rather less to do with the culture wars and more to do with money. Um, underpinning the Republican rebellion against uh, uh, McCarthy was sort of um, Tea Party style uh, radicalism on, on spending, and he wants an, uh, Mike Johnson wants an 8% overall budget cut, which is a heck of a lot of money, uh, especially when 
uh, Biden is asking for 14 billion for Israel and 60 billion for Ukraine. So far, Mike Johnson has said he'll go along with that, but he wants to pull both those out of the sort of omnibus spending bill that is about to go before uh, before uh, the Congress. And that means that while any money appropriated for Israel is almost certain to be approved, it does put uh, money for Ukraine at risk. And I know from our colleague Nina, that uh, who's just been uh, just come back from Ukraine, that a lot of people are very worried about that. Mm. And just for people who aren't so familiar with the hierarchy of U.S. politics, what what does the speaker do? What is their role? How senior are they? The speaker is the third in line to the presidency after the vice president. And the Speaker's office apportions the House's time, so effectively decides what is going to get debated and what gets to the top of the legislative agenda. Mm-hmm. Hashi, what, have you been following what's been happening in the US? I, I haven't been following it that much. I've seen him giving a press conference and somebody pointed out that he, had about, he was apparently part of the people who incited that riot in January, when Trump had lost the election, right. he was one of the people who had apparently said things in public that had incited it. But a member of the press asked the question. But immediately, the people around him on the press call, like, were standing next to him, were like, boo, next question, next question, boo. And he didn't even engage with it. He just moved, he just picked somebody else from the crowd. And it's that kind of mob rule, mm. Trump supporting, we don't care what the press thinks. That's we're a really here, good point. We're mm-hmm. here to win is, is what he's, he's all about, really. What, what would you take from that in terms of Trump's run for another go at the presidency? It, I think it just shows that even though he's, he's neither uh, in office nor formally the nominee, he already slash still has the whole party in his thrall. And it seems to me that if any Republican moderates are still considering their strategy or whether to put their hat in the ring. Um, This is a chilling uh, reminder that the most dangerous thing that can happen to any candidacy is to be blacklisted by Trump. Mm. And and so it, it shows you a party lurching in Trump's direction. And I wonder what your thoughts are about the, the the Democrats, because they've been sitting this one out. They've just been looking at this thinking, this is hilarious. I saw some of the images of, of them sitting there laughing at, at the carnage. Yeah, but they may be uh, not laughing for much longer because over the weekend, Dean Phillips from, from Minnesota, a 2018, um, in other words, a fairly junior Democratic congressman, uh, decided that he too was going to run for president, and that involves a primary challenge to a sitting Democratic president, which history tells us is disastrous. It, it'll, it'll merely, he is being told, Dean Phillips is being told, increase the chances of a Trump victory. But his view uh, is that the Democrats are in danger of finding themselves in a similar position to the Republicans, which is enthralled to or having a deer in headlights moment uh, in in the face of a candidate problem mm-hmm. that nobody has the guts to stand up and challenge. Giles, thank you. Uh, we'll be back in a minute to discuss Hashi's story. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Hashi, what have you got for us this week? Yes, a slight uh, change of gears from um, the conflict in Israel and Palestine and, and also what's happening in America and try and bring it a bit more domestic uh, I know that last Thursday, all of you guys would have been hooked on the bills that got royal assent. So I'm sure you will have been paying attention <laughs> to that. The leveling up and regeneration bill officially became the leveling up and regeneration act, um, also known as LURA. Hence my joke about LURA, LURA, love. Um, <laughs> Any joke you have to explain. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even one chuckle is enough. And this is being sort of touted as being a new dawn for planning and housing. And if I just read you from the government's press release, they said, this new act will empower communities to unlock more opportunities for levelling up and regeneration in high streets. New laws come into force today to speed up the planning system, hold developers to account, cut bureaucracy and encourage more councils to put in place plans to enable the building of new homes. Now, there is a huge amount of unknowns about this in that a lot of the proposals in the Act itself will require secondary legislation. We are less than a year, possibly 18 months from the next general election. And we know that we are told that we're in the midst of a housing crisis and a planning system that is completely um, under-resourced and under-supported. So, the first sort of point to make is that it's the jury's out as to the extent to which this is going to make a big difference in a very short space of time. So that's an area that I would pitch as part of your stories here today that needs to be explored in the next year is to what extent is the government's claims and the sort of hoo-ha that they, they made last week actually are going to turn out to be reality. But there are also some really fundamental changes in this in this legislation that will be really worth exploring some more. So, for example, if any of you guys have ever uh, built an illegal extension in your house, if you are if you manage to keep quiet and don't tell anyone, the council cannot do anything about it if you've managed to keep it hidden for four years. But not if you've built a massive barn in front of it, as, as one guy did, built a massive house, built a massive barn in front of it. 
and the council just saw the barn, didn't see the house behind it, and then one day just said, hey, presto, look, I built a house. And, and he's like, you can't enforce against me because it's been four years. That's deception he did get enforced against. But if you built an extension that is illegal and the council didn't come along, four years, you're home and dry. The government's now changed that and they've raised the enforcement of all breaches of planning to 10 years. That's a real game changer. So before, if you did something wrong on the high street and it was a commercial building, you'd have to prove 10 years that you've been breaching planning control. Householder, four years. But now everything is 10 years. Isn't that a good thing? It's a great thing, but it means that local authorities now have a huge amount of enforcement to to undertake because the four years allowed them to concentrate on the big stuff and kind of ignore some of the smaller stuff. And then if they got four years, they'll just say, okay, fine, whatever, just carry on. But now with 10 years, it means an under-resourced local authority has has got 10 years to get their act together as opposed to four years. So it's a good thing in the sense of the planning system. I think it's a bad thing when it comes to the, the amount of pressure that it will put on local authorities. Now, granting local planning authorities the ability to refuse developments, apparently, that are not beautiful enough is something that's come into force now. So beauty will be uh, right in the front of the agenda and councils will turn up and go, well, that doesn't look like a cubit's lovely terrace in Eaton Square um, in the middle of Clapham or in the middle of Enfield and therefore it's not beautiful enough. So it's I think their guidance on it's the, levels of beauty. That's the ridiculous been. thing. And again, all the money for me because I'll be at planning inquiries arguing about what's beautiful and what's not beautiful and getting paid for it, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but hey, presto, what more could you ask for? So I'll stop there. It's a lot of, lot of love and a lot of, lot of detail. Um, so, but the, the devil in the detail is well worth your your interest. I'm struggling to understand if it's a good thing or a bad thing overall. Is this a good thing for planning laws and housing in this country or not such a good mm-hmm. thing? Well, it's a very good thing for planning lawyers like me because it just further complicates a system that's already quite complicated and therefore... Uh, requires your services requires my services for eternity so (laughs) I'm grateful for that it's a bad thing in the sense that the detail is missing that the secondary legislation is missing and we're only a year and a half away from a a general election and the country is desperate for the planning system to be clarified Kerry you love planning what do you think well I'm intrigued. Have you built an an illegal extension Kerry can I just check there's definitely not a barn in front of my in front of my house and I can there's not one in front of Bashers either. Cause I've been no, there. No. Um, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by the politics of this because I think um, the sort of mood music after the Labour conference was that the Conservatives had slipped up by allowing Keir Starmer in his speech to seize the initiative on housing. And I've been amazed for 10 years that, that Labour leaders haven't gone further on housing than they have. So I remember in 2015... Ed Miliband going into that election, there was a promise to build more houses. But but if you looked at the number of houses, that the new houses that we needed, the promise from Labour at that point was effectively to make the problem slightly worse every year rather than any better. And so it's always sat there for me as a sort of big political open goal that um, that either party could, um, could, you know, could take advantage of. I, I agree. Does this, does this act come with a figure attached for how many extra homes are likely to be built as a result of it. Because in the end, that's the, that's the politics, isn't it? If, if we can say we're going we're gonna to help ease the housing crisis by building 350,000 additional homes in this country every year, then that lands. The kind of 
you know, we're, we're going to free up the planning system. Mm-hmm. We're going to, you know, change the. We're going to change the retrospective legislation. Blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, yeah, it, I, I think it's it's not going to work politically. I completely agree with you. In the press release, Michael Gove says we are still on board and still on track with delivering a million houses in this parliament. But in the next sentence, he says, but we're going to make sure that we put people in the local decision making. The moment you do that, you're not going to build a single thing. But, but even a million in a parliament is not enough, is it? Never enough. The, 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 the point about why we need, where the need is coming from, could be multifaceted. It could be to do with immigration. It could do with the fact that we're not building the right kind of houses that people want to live in. It could be the fact that most of that uh, housing that you have, for example, in prime London is being sold off in Hong Kong and Singapore. But the need is very clear. The need is three, 350,000 houses a year for at least 10 years if we're going to meet the demand that we need. But the politics of it is really interesting, Kerry, because I always turn up at a planning inquiry and on the first day of the housing development inquiry, I, oh, I'm always fascinated. I look at the audience of people who've turned up in the inquiry and I call them the silver-haired brigade because every single one of the people who are there who have time to turn up on a Tuesday morning bought their houses for two to three thousand pounds in the 1970s and they'll tell you all about the 18 percent interest rates they were paying and how they worked very hard and and how they don't want this big field next to their house being built on and you then you ask them how many of your children can afford to still live where they grew up how many of your grandchildren will one day be able to live where you grew up and to a person they'll say not a chance but they don't see the irony and the connection between the two all right Well, in a moment, I'll decide which story leads and what follows. But first, I'd like to know what you all think. Remember, you can't choose your own story. So, Kerry, what do you think should lead this week? I'm going to go with housing because because I have been interested in it for a long time. And I think it's a really interesting thing for politics. What can you make big simple promises anymore. Um, I think what I see from politics over you know, decades really is that politicians are now so, so frightened of over-promising that they, they lose touch with what the heart of an issue is. And Hashi, right at the end there, has outlined what the, what the heart of the, of the housing issue is, which is a, you know, a simple thing that um, can, we, can we realistically promise to people that we will build enough houses in this country for them and their children and their grandchildren to, to have a decent place to live. Um, and I would like us to be able to get back to making those kind of simple, big promises. And that's why I'm going to go with Hashi's, despite the benefits to Hashi, of obviously, you <laughs> know now that he actually looks at that planning inquiry when he turns up and thinks, how long can I spin this out for on my exorbitant daily rate? Um, Giles, what do you think should lead? Uh, the riot at Mahachkala Airport, because it sends shivers down my spine uh, on behalf of Steve Rosenberg and um, Jewish people across Russia who might feel similar fears, but also because it brings back memories of a Russia that Putin thought was falling apart. Hashi, what do you I think? am torn between the two, uh, but on balance, I, I also agree with Giles that this is a story that moves things along a little bit from the conflict and it is depressing. Uh, all around this topic. Okay. We may have to formally apologise to Luton before we're done. And also Luton had that fire in the car park, so it's not as great as it used to be, I think. Well, (laughs) I recently flew from Luton and I was very impressed, I have to say. So they've got the new um, train line. Anyway.
I agree with Kerry's political point about housing. I think there's an element to the story you pitched, Hashi, which is a bit wait and see about the secondary legislation. Um, and of course, despite it being personally good for you, I think there is a um, a question about where we are in relation to the next election, about how much of this is really going to get implemented. Um, so for that reason, I think I would put it in third place. But I do think that the political point is an important one and the way that you summarised it in terms of that sort of central promise is is very important. I think in second place, I'll put Mike Johnson. I think you're right that it's a very powerful symbol of just how far Trump has captured the Republican Party. But I think in in first position leading this week, I think the airport, I don't know whether we call it a riot or a protest or an attack. Um, it looked like a riot. They were tearing off doors. Right. In that case, the riot at um, Hatchkala Airport, I think, is, for me, in first position because, as Kerry and Giles have made the point, it is, I think, an example of what's to come and and what has already started happening. It raises questions about Russia, but it also raises questions about what's going to happen around the world. And I don't think you can discount the historical emotional power that something like that holds for many Jews around the world. So I would lead with that as a sort of latest development in what the Israel-Palestine conflict is unleashing with Mike Johnson in second and housing in third. Just before we finish up, uh, there's an email from one of our listeners, John Malarkey, who has said, where is your coverage of the COVID inquiry? COVID was one of the most significant global events in my lifetime, yet I hear almost nothing about the inquiry. Can you provide some insights? I think that is a very good point. You're right to say that we haven't covered the inquiry in depth yet, but as we know, this week we're going to get Dominic Cummings and a number of very senior civil servants giving evidence. So I would say listen on Friday because it may be that that's when we... Uh, You've done it in sense-making, haven't you, Giles? Yeah. The yeah. reasonably thorough sense-maker last week. Yeah. There you go. Okay, well, John Malarkey, you could read one of our SenseMaker emails uh, and find out more. But if, like John, you think there's another story which you think that we should be talking about, you can email us with your thoughts, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. So that's it for today. Giles, Kerry, Hashi, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The text messages that are coming out in the COVID inquiry this week are going to be quite good. Well, we should definitely talk about that on Friday then. James is going to be back on Friday, so you can take it up with him. Uh, Do join him then. Have a very good week. Tortoise. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.